a loveless faith is fake. That's what we're going to pursue today as we enter the scriptures. That if our faith is without love, then it's not faith at all. I'm not sure if you have followed, we are in this continual argument about what we should do with this book or that book. Should we ban it? Should we kick it out? And I'm not sure if I'm even the person to make those decisions, but I do know that if you are a parent and you have multiple children in your home or maybe just one child in your home, you are continually having to deal with books in a different way. You're not worrying about what you're going to get rid of. You're just worrying about the great decluttering. How do I get rid of this? Anyone, can I get an amen? I don't ask for those a lot in the room. We need to get rid of these books. Years ago, I was in our living room, and I noticed a few books that were there for the kids. And I began to flip through them, and I listened as someone was reading one of these to my uh, oldest son, Shepard, who was three or four at the time. So don't think my 15-year-old was sitting in the floor as someone read this. But the book sounded like this, and it sounded really sweet until it got weird. A mother held her new baby and very, very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, my house. He pulled all the books off the shelves. He pulled all the food out of the refrigerator. And he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, She opened the door to his room. She crawled across the floor. She looked up over the side of his bed, and if he was really asleep, she would pick him up, rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. The little boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was nine years old. And he never wanted to come in for dinner. He never wanted to take a bath. That's true. And when Grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room. She crawled across the floor. She looked up over the side of the bed. And if he was really, really asleep, she picked him up. That nine-year-old boy, and she rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. We've all been there loving our children, looking at them, thinking about how much affection we have for them. But the boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager. He had strange friends and he wore strange clothes and he listened to strange music. Sometimes his mother felt like she was in the zoo. But at nighttime, when the teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room. She crawled across the floors. It's just, this is where it gets awkward. Crawled across the floor. She looked up over the side of the bed, and if he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy, and she rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as you're living, my baby, you'll be. He grew until he was a grown-up man. He left home, which makes sense. And got a house across town. But sometimes on dark nights, the mother got into her car and she drove across town. If all the lights in her son's house were out, what if the police drive by? (laughs) She opened his bedroom window. 
crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed like a burglar. And if that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and she rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always as long as I'm living. My baby, you'll be. Look, moms, I need you to know I don't understand you, but that is weird. <laughs> the love that I don't get. I'm a dad that you cannot describe. When we get to 1 John, we have been dealing with the idea of love for weeks now. And we're looking at what God says to us about love and the value of it, the validity of it, the tangibility of it, what love really is, how love really affects us, and what love looks like. And today we're in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. And as I read this today, I want you to think through in your own life about these aspects that are present in this passage about the way that you and I Happen to love because as I said earlier, a, a loveless faith, it's fake. If there is no love present in your faith, then it is a fake love. What's it say to us? What, whose love are we talking about? The love of God? The love of people? Yes. Yes. First John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning to his brother... And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, but withholds compassion from him, know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. And receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now this is his command. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. And love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his command remains in him and he in him. And the the way we know that he remains in us... It's from the spirit that he has given us. Now remember, our central idea is a loveless faith. It's fake. But as we look at the text, here's what we're going to see in regard to the breakdown of it. In 11 through 15, you see loveless action. That's what we see, love assured. And we have a a bit of a breakdown there as to what an assured love is and how that functions. 
An assured love has confidence before God. It has directed by Jesus and it is sealed by the Spirit. So when we look into the church at Ephesus, if you've not been with us, we are so glad that you're here. But I want you to know that up to this point in the book and the church at Ephesus, there are a group of people who have left. They have splintered away from the church, leaving John and the church at Ephesus behind because they had figured out a new variant of Christianity that was void of Jesus coming and being in the flesh. And when John talks about these who have left the church, what he points out to the church at Ephesus and what the Lord by His grace has pointed out to Grace Bible on a Sunday morning and every church that spends time in this text is that there's loveless action and we see that in the idea of Cain. And, his, and when he talks about love, he's saying that we are to love one another. It echoes back to John 13, 34 and 35, the teaching of Jesus that you will know that you belong to him when you love one another. It's a repeated theme through the book of John and through the book of 1 John. The mark of spiritual transformation is brotherhood and sisterhood of believers. Us being able to get over our differences for the sake of who we have in common matters. There are a couple of things at play here that I don't want us to overlook. One is, this is talking about what it means for believing people to interact with one another. Those who are bound together, as I say consistently, throughout the history of space and time, by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus, those who have placed their faith in Jesus to deal with... Look at that. We see brothers, and we are bound together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Secondarily from that, we see that we are called to love those whom we would love to be our brothers and sisters. That there are unbelieving people in our world who we don't know their predestination, no matter how much some of us act like we do sometimes. That we would love lost people in the hope of them coming to faith in Jesus who would die for their sins and offer resurrection in their place. So when we, we talk about what it means for us to follow Jesus and to love those who are far from us, according to the text, we have to make sure that we're really, really consistent with our message. And I want to be careful with our words here. If I were to say we cannot separate the love command from the gospel message, I would be giving us more power over this idea of the good news than we actually have. If it is not good news, it's not the gospel. If it's not good news, it's not the gospel. Good news goes into bad places and offers hope in exchange. That's what we've been called to as believers. For brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling, we go into the darkness of their worlds and we say to them, how can I be incarnational with you? And for those in our lives who are not believers, we offer the hope of Christ as we meet whatever need may need to be met. As John goes in, continues in the passage, he says in verse 12, unlike Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. I'm not sure as to your history with the Bible. You get to Cain and his brother really early. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 4, nudity and sn- Because his deeds were evil. And his brother's, Abel's e- deeds, were righteous. 
There's a point where Jesus, where the Lord says to Cain in Genesis 4, If you do what is right, you, you will, not, will you not be accepted? But if you do what is wrong, sin is crouching at the door. Cain's actions were evil because he belonged to the evil one. The first person born into the world is a counterpoint to the message of Yahweh and the message of Jesus. The first person born into a world where God had said, this is life, murdered. It's a description of the invasion and the pervasiveness of sin as a consequence of the fall. God says, life, our broken sinful hearts say death. Cain, the first fruit of Eve's womb, Abel offered a blood sacrifice. Cain offered a a cantaloupe or a peach or something. That's a paraphrase. We don't know the reason that his sacrifice was a problem. It was unacceptable and it was evidently, it was faithless. Faithless sacrifice is not sacrifice. Cain's the only Old Testament figure that is mentioned in 1 John. And it seems to be intentional on behalf of John as he writes the letter, as he shares with the church at Ephesus. How so? Think about it. How often have each of us looked at the story of Cain and said, I don't know what Cain did wrong. What was wrong with the gourd that he brought to God? What was the problem with whatever he happened to offer up to the Lord? In the church at Ephesus... Can you imagine being there as some who have been leaders in your midst begin to leave? Long enough, you've been in a situation where someone has left. What happened? Did they break something? Did they do something? Our minds spin into this spiral as to what sin this person may have committed. What happened? And there are confused members who wonder what the big deal it was and why there was such a schism to associate their behavior with Cain, which is what John does, that those who have left, to associate their behavior with Cain lets them know how divisive and unable to own wrongdoing those who were leaving the church happened to be. On top of that, these forefathers of what we call Gnosticism, which separates the idea of God and the flesh, seem to believe that they were without sin, which is always a problem. If you believe you are without sin, you're a liar. And if you've got a problem with me saying that, I didn't say it. John did. What if the great sin of Cain, though? What if, at least in part, the great sin of Cain, when offering up, if I offer this up, it won't affect me negatively whatsoever? He saw no fault in offering up a sacrifice that needed no faith. He's not just a negative example. He is the antithesis of what every believing person should be. Our sacrifices should cost us something. If you offer up a sacrifice and it doesn't cost you anything, by definition, it's not a sacrifice. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Jesus told us the world would hate us. He says it in John 15. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. It hated me first. The experience of the Christian within any setting, in particular a nation, is to be all together. We can't grasp ourselves as global citizens in, in a sense. We have to see ourselves bound by something. 
When you begin to talk about the uniqueness of it, I'm reminded of this quote by Justo Gonzalez where he says this, Christians are no different from the rest in their nationality, their language, or their customs. Think about your experience here in Lake Jackson or wherever you came from, Mississippi or Alabama or, or wherever you may have come from. Think about your experience. In this nation, there's no difference. He goes on to say, they live in their own countries, but they live as sojourners. They fulfill all of their duties as citizens. But we suffer as foreigners. They find their homeland where they are, but their real homeland is not in any one plus the laws, but they live at a level higher than that is required by the law. They love all, but all persecute them. This is what it means to be countercultural people. We talk about culture too much, and I'm careful not to discuss it unless I'm talking about yogurt. But for the sake of argument, I'm going to break my rule. When we discuss Christian culture, We are not having a conversation about a subsect of something that is already present in the world with minor adjustments. To be a counter-cultural Christian is by definition to be something else because Christians are something else. And sometimes Christians are something else in the way that my grandmother would say something else. But we are something else. So in our own practical living, if you skew conservative... Which you do, and we do, when talking about those on the left of what our belief system is, we must be careful with our words because we are a counter-cultural people. If you skew the other direction, when speaking on the right, you are obligated to give careful thought to your words. Because what we say and how we act in a world that is far from Jesus makes a statement about Jesus. Every time that we do it, when we speak of those who we believe in, when we speak of those we believe to be in opposition to the good news, our tone cannot resonate with the tone of any other group in the world. We resonate with the tone of Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. So we think about our words. We know that we've passed, verse 14, from death to life because we love our brothers and we lay in death. But what if I was catechized? If you do not love, you remain in death. But I'm there at Dixie Drive every Sunday. If you do not love, you remain in death. Them's the rules, kids. In John 5, 24, the same phrase is used. It's synonymous to remain in death with escaping judgment and obtaining eternal life. Why? Because the child of God loves. Loves God, loves the things of God, loves the people of God, and loves the people who would like to be the people of God. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is Cain. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him absent. 
Everyone who hates the teaching of Jesus indicate that inward sin is just as problematic as outward action. For John, not loving means to hate. There is no middle ground. It's either one or it's the other. You either love or you hate. There's loving and then there's hating. Note that to not love someone for John is to equate to a murderer. John has heard Jesus say this in the Sermon on the Mount. That if you refer to your brother and sister and you call him, as he uses this Aramaic word, raka, which means fool, you've committed murder in your mind and in your thoughts. And if you're spiritually dead, you don't just passively lack love, you actively hate. If you are spiritually dead, you don't just lack love, you are actively hating. That's not passive action, that's active aggression toward God and the things of God. You either actively hate or you actively love. So, so we look and we see this idea of the brother of Cain. We also know we have come. This is how we have come to know love. So how do I understand love in a world that's telling me that I hate if I'm not loving the way that God loves? This is how we know love. He laid down his life. And we should also lay down our lives for our brothers. Love looks like Jesus, not a knockoff, not a cheap imitation. A little over a year ago, I started playing basketball again. I thought it was a cheap sport until I ordered all the compression gear that someone may need to keep himself compressed. (laughs) Compression gear for your knees and compression gear for your ankles, like ankle spanks. All this compression gear for my... For men, currently, it, it, because of my uh, return to the hoop to the courts, currently Instagram feed is filled and littered with ads for basketball equipment. I can order a ball that trains me to dribble. I, I can order shoe inserts that make me jump higher, which is about two inches <laughs> with the insert. There is a ball that you can order that you can dribble around the house in silence. Now, for my money... A dribbling basketball wins the silver medal for terrible sounds in a house right behind the gold medal winner, which is getting your kid a drum kit because you hate yourself. (laughs) The basketball that we ordered was the silent dribbler. We ordered it, and here's the technical term for how I was treated. I was hoodwinked. Let me see that, Nolly. Yeah, Yep, that's it. That's it. Let me tell you what this is made of. I mean, there, there's a, it's been, yep, that's not how a basketball bounces, kids. This is a cheap, not, this doesn't do what it's supposed to do. It doesn't seem like a basketball. It doesn't feel like a basketball. It's not a basketball. You can't play a game with that. It's not a basketball. It's a cheap imitation. The sacrificial death of Christ is the foundation of all that we believe about Christian service. And to understand it, we go back to what John says to us early in chapter 1. We saw him. We touched him. We observed him intently. He is real. 
And he's talking to a group of people who are saying that Jesus is not real. If you wonder what the problem with Gnostic and pre-Gnostic philosophy is, they say that Jesus was not real. Now, I get it. It's a massive claim that God became man. But if we remove from God, if we remove God becoming man from Christianity, it crashes and crumbles. And you're wasting your time right now. To deny Jesus came in the flesh is anti-Messiah. It is anti-Christ. Your Bible may say ought or should there in that verse. It has a different meaning for us than it did in the first century because we're not saying that you ought to do something or you should do something. It's actually saying it means is to. The believer in Jesus is to lay down his and her life for our brothers. We owe our lives to our brothers and sisters. It carries with it a tone of obligation. And to not lay down your life for your brother in the same way that the message of the Gnostics was anti-Messiah because it was void of Christ in the flesh. To not lay down our lives sacrificially for our brothers and sisters is anti-Messiah. We are functioning as anti-Christ. I'm not asking you what you say you believe. I'm asking you how you live what you believe. We don't make God good and we don't make God better. So don't get confused by that. We don't make God good or make God a better God. That's not what we're talking about here. One of my favorite Bible teachers is a Presbyterian in uh, Nashville. Her name is Paige Benton Brown. And she says this, God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to be short for God to shortchange his children. If he fluctuated one quark in his goodness, I've had to Google that, I'll be transparent with you. But if he fluctuated one quark in his goodness in sacrificial ways, we're not making God better. We are saying that we believe that Jesus is better. This is what it means for us to live as Christian people, as Christ in the flesh, as if we've experienced God. In the full, if anyone has this world's goods and sees a fellow believer in need, this sounds just like James because they were running side by side, it seems, in their thought process. But withholds compassion. The word compassion means stirred. If we're not stirred by the effect of sin on our world, both in the micro and the macro, How does God's love really reside in him? Little children, let us not love in word or speech, but in action. Resurrected Messiah, who has called me to live in a crucified way. Resurrected way. In a crucified and resurrected way. 19 to 24, they show us love assured. We can see that it works together in the passage 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and we and will reassure our hearts before him. Whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. So 19, 20 through 22, they show us our confidence before God. Faithful living results in a confident heart. And this is a stark contrast to unfaithful living for the believer. Think about how the enemy, right here, because that phrase is weird to me, that God is greater than my heart. Think about how the enemy attacks your heart. Every one of us, just think about it. Guilt. 
We ask ourselves this question. Can you believe that you did that? Happen if someone knows that you think that. Shame. You are so vile for doing that. Where can you find your right standing if that's where you're, where you're starting? There is a right standing for you. But it doesn't start within you. It starts outside of you. Think about the work of Jesus. As he works through the word in the lives of believers. Because God is greater than our hearts. Innocence. That's his response for us when he looks at our guilt. When we think of guilt, Jesus offers us innocence. Because in Romans it says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we consider the idea of avoiding sin, Jesus is the one who confronted sin in our place. As John the baptizer said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we, take a thing, when we consider fear, we think about the words of the writer of the book of Hebrews who reminds us that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, but he did not sin. Because of that, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Boldness continued. Anyone who believes in Christ, you will never, ever, ever, E-V-A, be put to shame. That's the promise of God for those of us who are his people. 21, dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. If we rest assured in all that Christ has done in our place, we can be confident in that and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. We have confidence right there before God according to this text. We also see that we are directed by Jesus. 23, gospels come full circle because to love God is to believe in Christ. To trust in Christ is to love God. To love our brother and our sister, and thus we pray, and those who we pray are our brothers, is to love our neighbor as ourselves. These are not different ideas. They are two variants of a single, undivided love. Because in Christ, we can love God. In Christ, we can love God. In Christ, we see what it means to practically love humanity for the sake of God. These are the promises of Jesus for us as his people. These are what he's commanded us to. This is what he moves us to. Verse 24, we see also that we are sealed by his spirit. This is a very Trinitarian thing. This is the first time that we see John mention the spirit in the book of 1 John. This is the one who keeps his commands. Remains in him. And he in him. And the way that we know he remains in us is from. It gives us confidence in the face of, diff- of shame. That offers us hope in the face of despair. The Spirit has sealed every believer in this room to remind you and to remind me you can confidently love your brother and sister because I have made that so. I've made that possible. And each week as a congregation, we come to this conclusion of our services. And as we do, we take communion. What that means is this. If you are a believer in this room, I don't care. If you're a member of grace... Of course, please take communion. If you're not a member of Grace Bible, but you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have placed your faith in Jesus, what we believe is that God has bound us together and you are invited to take of the table with us. If you're not a believer, know that we love you, that we care for you, and that we would love for you to be our brother and sister in Christ. But if you are not a believer, I would ask you not to come to the table. 
If you want to talk to me about why, I'm in the back corner of the room. I got something better than the table. I'll just share that truth with you based on what scriptures teach us. But as the believers this morning, we're going to come to the table in just a moment. So I invite you to bow your heads where you are. Jesus, would you assure us, would you encourage us, would you build us up, would you make us more like you? Father, if there are those in the space who have never placed their trust in you, God, I pray that they would trust you today, today, today. Believing that you, Jesus, died in our place and that you offered life in exchange. That you took our sin on the cross and you destroyed it. And you offer hope for those who are far from you. So, Father, we ask you today that you would save lost people. But, God, we also ask that you would, your spirit would work in this body to love as you love, to care as you care. To offer Christian... God, to offer the world what it looks like for Christian people to follow after you. Gotta move in our midst this morning as we come to the table when we realize how powerful what we are coming to is. We ask all this in your name, Lord Jesus.